0: Thanks for joining us today for our IIM podcast on early stage investing. My name is Lydia Kincaid, and I'm managing director for IIM. And we have Lee Harris, our managing member for IIM as well. Um, So Lee, we've talked about this a few times before in different iterations, though. It seems like some of these um, things that we're hearing from founders continue to repeat themselves. Um, So let's talk a little bit today about some pitfalls during the investor pitch. Um, and some are quite timely. Um, here we are sitting almost the very middle of the year in 2022. Um, so if anyone's listening, you know, at a later date, we'll see if these continue to ring true in the early stage investment landscape. Um, but we, we hear a lot of pitches, I mean, hundreds a year, year over year. Um, and we, we seem to hear, like I said, many of the same things that really cause us to pause. Um, or might even be such a big deal that it's a red flag that we won't even invest if we hear certain things during a pitch. Um, One of the things that we've talked about, Lee, is the lack of IP for a company um, or a lack of an IP strategy, intellectual property. So Lee, how about you start us off by talking about that critical component of an early stage business?
1: Well, I think It's timely, not just this uh, specific topic, but generally speaking, because we are in a period of time where uh, it's going to be harder for founders to fundraise. Uh, We're at the doorstep, perhaps, of a recession. Uh, We're seeing uh, market volatility in the public uh, world. Uh, We've seen venture firms that have pulled back a bit. We're seeing companies laying off. Uh, in preparation for potentially that recession. Uh, I think this is very important that founders, hopefully we get a lot of founders that will listen to this podcast because uh, as difficult as it's becoming to raise capital, these are things that are self-inflicted, in many cases, self-inflicted wounds that are perpetrated by our founders. And, And the lack of intellectual property and uh, understanding, I think, is really uh, the, the point here. And it's critical, I think, for a founder to include this in their pitch deck front and center. Uh, what are you doing to create that moat around your business? Sometimes that's business processes. Sometimes that's your idea. And often it's the legal protection that you can gain from patents and Trade secrets and registered trademarks and that sort of thing. Uh, many of, our, of the pitches that we hear gloss over this completely, uh, and particularly those kind of companies that are providing some level of service and and don't have a hardware type of product, for example, um, they may be skipping over that uh, because they don't have any true IP. Protection, intellectual property protection, since nothing's patentable, perhaps. But I think that uh, knowing that it's an issue for those of us that are in the funding world, uh, a founder should think this through and think it through in, in terms of a moat. What exactly are you doing to build that moat as wide and deep as you can to keep the competition at bay? And if you don't have the legal protection from patents, Uh, you have to have some way to convince a funder uh, that you are going to succeed uh, in spite of the competition because of some aspects or aspects of your your business strategy and your business plan that makes it that much harder for a, a competitor to gain traction. So I would recommend to a founder that They really lean into that notion and get out there in front of it. And if they don't have uh, a good uh, concept of that, then before you start asking people for money, asking venture firms like ours for money, you really need to come up with with a convincing argument as to how you are protecting your idea.
0: Emily, you mentioned this too. I mean... uh... I.P., intellectual property, doesn't necessarily mean a patent because we see software companies or service based companies, as you mentioned as well, that maybe there's not a patent on paper, but there's some sort of trade secret or some sort of secret sauce, if you will, um, that's, that will enable the start this particular company to beat their competition and not allow their competition to just replicate exactly what they're doing. And so that's what we mean when we, when we talk about IP strategy, there's more to it really than just a trademark or a copyright. That's not really enough to protect a business um, from outside competition. We we do hear that all the time. Um, that's right. we, go ahead, Lee.
1: Well, and I said, That's right. And I think that you know, Warren Buffett says it well, uh, And he talks about Geico, the insurance company. Geico doesn't have any intellectual property. They don't have a patent, but they have a wide moat. In this particular case, that moat is all about price. And that's not necessarily a good moat for many businesses to create because it's a race to the bottom in in some cases. But uh, he has been able to carve out a niche in the marketplace for the Geico uh, insurance company uh, by being as nimble as they are with their pricing. Uh, real pure and simple. I mean, there's nothing else to that moat. Uh, right. in, in, in and you, you can do it in a service business, uh, in, in insurance products or perhaps a service business, but uh, there is a strategy that you need to figure out as a founder, if you have a service type of business and you can't trademark or trade secret something, but maybe it's the way you deliver the process of uh, the, the service uh, that is so unique uh, and, and so eye-catching that it, it gains traction. And so, some people have taken the philosophy, well, we get the market first And we'll scale as quickly as we possibly can. And that's the way we beat the competition. Folks, that doesn't really cut it. uh, Because there's all sorts of scalability issues that uh, we're we're going to discover. Uh, And if if this is a de novo startup, wow, that's tough. Uh, So again, I don't have the specific answer, but I do think that it's a question that you, as a founder, need to have given great thought to and have a very convincing approach to protecting your uh, intellectual property, whether it's with a patent, that's much easier, or if it's uh, something else that you're doing to create that moat and keep the competition at bay.
0: Right. And, you know, I, I don't really consider first to market much of an intellectual property strategy at all. It's, it's really not. Uh, first to market actually makes me more concerned for the reasons you described, Lee, for the growing pains, but also why isn't there anybody else doing this in some cases? Because is there really even a sizable market for the product or service that you're delivering? And, and wow, the competitors will just be able to replicate and follow along and learn from your mistakes if you're first to market. So there really has to be more to it than just first to market. Um, Okay, something else we hear a lot about, Lee, um, and we talk about a lot is exit strategy. When we are in the venture capital business and so our investment strategy is to invest in a company at a very appealing valuation and then five to seven years later, there's an exit opportunity for that company. Um, Sometimes that's in the form of an IPO or an acquisition, but it's some sort of positive liquidity event for the investors. And it comes in a 10X to 20X return multiple is what we look for every time we invest. Um, Sometimes we'll hear founders when we ask the question, so what's your exit strategy? They say, well, we haven't quite thought that through yet. Or, "You know, I'm really building this as a company for my family. We wanna create a nice lifestyle um, and generate a steady cash flow um, for our family and for our investors as well. And I mean, that, that sort of response is really a non starter for us as funders because we don't want to hold on to these businesses long term. We want the company to grow like crazy and then it gets sold um, or perhaps goes public. Um, so, Lee, how about you talk about that concern a little bit more as well?
1: You know, just a quick story, and we just had a pitch recently from a, a founder. Uh, when the question was asked about exit, and by the way, again, this ought to be a subject that uh, a founder leans into and addresses without being prompted. Uh, uh, you know, what's the time frame before you expect that exit? Uh, what are the different options for that exit that you're considering? We're not so interested in you telling us how much you think you can get for the company at that particular point in time. We can make our own assessment of that. Uh, but at least have, have some rudimentary strategic thinking along those lines. In this particular case, when the question was asked during the Q&A period, uh, this, this founder blurted out, and, and it, by the way, this founder had several members of his family as, uh, as, as part of his team, uh, and he said, you know, if we reach the level of revenue that we're looking for, uh, this may be a, a good business that we just keep going. Well, immediately that's a, a red flag for us. And he realized it. And then shortly thereafter started backpedaling and, and he even backpedaled further uh, as, as we got deeper into the, the Q and a, because he realized he, he probably stepped in it and he had, uh, but Uh, it was a Freudian slip on his part and we really knew what his true thinking was. And so when you make that kind of mistake, it's going to be really hard to convince your funding platform that you're talking to that you didn't really mean it, that you really are interested in an exit. And again, as a founder, if you control the, uh, the voting shares, even if, if we have some voting shares uh, if, if you control those voting shares and you decide not to sell, we can't do anything about that. Um, And therefore, we're going to be reticent to make an investment when your gut level instinct was, well, we may just hang on to this company for the long haul.
0: That's exactly right. Um, It's hard to take something back when those words are blurted out. Um, There's really no going back from there. And everybody on that call heard it. It was part of our debrief conversation after the pitch as well. Uh, So exit strategy, I think that's pretty obvious. How about team issues? We see this a lot, um, not only in maybe having one founder as opposed to co-founders. We really like having co-founders, by the way. Um, But beyond even the co-founders, what does that team look like? Is there a good balance of skills and expertise and perspective? Um, This can be so detrimental to a company to not have a plan because things will get tough. Um, and it's so important to have the right people on the bus to grow the company and be able to be nimble enough, thoughtful enough, move quickly enough um, to get through the tough times and the good times as well. But Lee, how about the team? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's important that the team not be too one dimensional. I mean, you, you definitely need to have multiple players that, that each have a, a key role. We have a company, we had a company, I think it's going to be a, we had a company uh, that we made an investment in that uh, is is probably going to wind up and go out of business. Now, why did that happen? And we'll do a, probably a case study on this in another podcast, but just a snippet Mm -hmm. here. Uh, They were headed toward a serious uh, fundraise for, was it a series B, Lydia? I can't remember. Series B round. And they had investors lined up. They had a term sheet. And then at the 11th hour, the lead investor pulled out. Why did the lead investor pull out? Because they did not have confidence in the CEO. And what happened? The CEO resigned and and was probably forced out. And uh, the CFO stepped in. And then it was a mad scramble. How do we find the money to stay alive? There was some bridge funding that kept them alive for a little while, but not long enough. And that company was so one-dimensional with respect to everything hinged on that that CEO uh, that they they could not convince the marketplace to to provide additional funds to to push their their product uh, to a, a scalable level. And as a result, they're having to fold their tent. Uh I mean that's that's very unfortunate when that happens. Uh, and th- that's why I say a one-dimensional uh, organization that's just so dependent on a CEO or a founder uh, is, is difficult. There are other companies that we have seen that we would not invest uh, in that company because we did not have confidence uh, that the founder would be a good CEO. Uh, One of the things that we have just implemented is the utilization of a caliper profile. And caliper is a public company based in New Jersey, and they have a a fairly rigorous uh, testing uh, program that is online uh, that identifies traits and tendencies against a, a position description and so one of the things we're now asking founders to do is take that that profile all of us have done it and the the senior leaders of, of our organization uh and it's it's very insightful uh and if we if we find a founder that says no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that we won't invest i mean pure and simple uh but uh, it would have, it would be very helpful, I think, for some founders that are insistent upon being CEOs to see how they test with respect to traits and tendencies. There's nothing wrong. I've said it before. There's nothing wrong with being a founder and not being the CEO. Uh, what you want to do is position your company in such a way that you have the greatest chance for success. And if you are Able to check your ego at the door and say, I need to hire a professional CEO. And we have companies that have done that. uh, That's fantastic. We have companies that uh, we have again chosen not to invest in, or in a couple of cases, we've chosen not to to, to invest again uh, simply because the CEO has not demonstrated the the uh, level of of expertise, the level of CEO expertise uh, to lead the company to greater heights. Uh, You know, you can have team members that are in conflict. Some level of conflict is healthy, but destructive conflict is not. Uh, We don't see that as much, or at least it's not revealed to us as much, but certainly uh, I think I would focus the most at this point on that CEO slash founder, and is that really the right person to lead the organization for the long haul? It may be that as a founder, you say I'm going to lead the organization initially, and then I'm going to step aside. I will still have my shares, I my ownership, and I'll still make a contribution, whether it's my domain expertise or whatever. But uh, I realize that, that my capacity and my capability is limited in terms of getting to scale. And therefore, I'm perfectly willing to, to hand this off to a professional CEO. And how refreshing would that be to have a pitch where a, a founder suggests that that's part of their strategy, part of their plan in the year and a half, two years, they're going to bring in a professional CEO. That would be incredible.
0: It sure would. I mean, we do have a handful of companies in our portfolio who have done just that as well. Like The, the founders are no longer the CEO, even as I've of- Today, I got an email today about one of our portfolio companies that has just hired a new CEO. And I'm I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited for that company because I think it'll bring a whole new skill set to help them scale and get to the next level. Investors really do like to hear that, that a founder is humble enough and knows what's best for the company to say, you know, I'm probably not the CEO forever of this company. Okay. Unrealistic timelines. This, I think, Lee, when we were talking about this, came up when we were talking about our medical companies, perhaps in the healthcare space, 510K regulations, um, other types of approval processes that are necessary, um, particularly for medical devices. Um, Sometimes we'll see companies pitch that have these timelines that are far too aggressive and unrealistic. Oh, well, we'll submit for FDA 510K approval in six months. And then we'll be all wrapped up with that and ready to move on. And we'll get all these clinical trials done and we'll have all this data all within 12 months. Um, and when we hear timelines like that, we kind of chalk it up to the CEO, either being overly optimistic or just doesn't know what they're doing. Um, Lee, what else would you like to add to the timeline topic? We've talked quite a bit about this.
1: Well, it's, it, we see a lot of financial projections and what's, uh, fascinating. (laughs) I would put air quotes around that. What's fascinating about a lot of those projections is that they show $24,000 in revenue year one and $20 million in year two and $80 million in year three. And, you know, we throw that out the window. I mean, that's just, if if that could happen, that would be amazing. Now in some software businesses, you'll see 10% growth month over month uh or more. Uh but in most businesses, that isn't going, going to happen. You may see some fairly significant growth uh once once that product is brought to market. Uh, but it would be much better to 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 be a little bit more uh I, I, I would say let's let's dial it back a little bit in terms of, of the projections that you're making listen, if you want to have a stretch goal, that's fine. But don't, don't show us the stretch goal because we, we just will think you're either naive or you're blowing smoke at us. Uh, it's, and I think that from a timeline standpoint, that's probably the area that, that, that I look at the most is what do people think they're going, going to do? We had a, a company that we looked at recently that said that uh, they would go from a prototype product Uh, to manufacturing themselves uh, several hundred units the first year. Uh, They had no idea uh, if that's realistic. They don't have any idea really truly what their costs are going to be as far as manufacturing. They were doing, as I said, they were doing it themselves. Supply chain could be a real issue. It is an issue right now. Uh, It's better to moderate those kind of expectations and elongate the timeline as opposed to being overly aggressive, overly optimistic. Uh, We like to see optimistic founders, but we don't like to see unrealistic founders in terms of of expectations. So there's a fine balance there, better to err on the side of conservatism than, than being too aggressive.
0: Well, and where this can get especially problematic is when those revenue projections are what they're basing their runway on. So we ask founders all the time, okay, what's your runway? And they'll tell us, "Oh." 18 to 24 months. Um, And as a side note, what we're looking for every time now is a runway of 24 months. We want companies to at a minimum have that much time until they need to go out and raise another round of financing. Um, But they say, oh, with this round of financing and with these revenue projections, we'll be just fine to get through the end of next year. And so that's like double whammy there, like not only their projections out of control, but they're basing the life of their company on these projections. And so that makes us think, well, okay, they're going to turn around in three months and ask for more money because all of a sudden they're not hitting their targets. They don't have enough money. They're going to have to close their doors in five months. And the company is now at the point of desperation that they could take bad capital, bad terms. It's, it's, it's not good well
1: and i think I think that's you you touch on an area that's of real concern right now and that's not raising enough money mm-hmm. uh and and that's a the example you gave is perfect this there was a company that wanted half a million dollars that's all the, the the raise was and when we calculated what they expected the revenues to be and they they thought okay this was in uh may of 2022 and they thought with this five hundred thousand dollar raise they would they would get through to December of 2023. Okay, well, that's a not 24 months, but it's uh, it's it's close. But uh, a big chunk of that getting through to December 2023 was based on revenues of a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the product, and then there was a subscription model that added more dollars on top of that that's, a, that's, that's not the way to do it. The, the, the right way to do it in our opinion, if you're very early stage and you're pre-revenue is raise enough money that you don't have any revenue coming during that 24 month period. If you end up with money left over at the end of 24 months, because you actually did generate revenue, you just elongated your runway, which is wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that, but uh, raising too little money and then scrambling around for a bridge round. Uh, it's, it's distracting to your primary purpose, which is to grow your business. Your primary purpose is not to just constantly be raising money. Uh, and, and that also brings to mind, uh, we see some unrealistic valuations right now. That's a, a huge problem. And Lydia, I mean, you, you're uh, well-schooled on you know, the whole valuation situation. What are, you, what are you seeing right now as far as uh, this shift away from some of the craziness that we see some of these accelerators that are uh, companies go through an accelerator program and they're told that they're, they should go out with these monstrous valuations. And does that seem to be moderating yet or will it?
0: I think it depends on on where you're looking. So some numbers are showing that valuations are getting cut in half. Um, and I've, I've certainly seen that in some companies that we're talking with, um, but there's still companies and founders out there that believe they're still at 2021 valuation levels um, and even earlier in this year. And that's just not reality. Investors um, are not gonna take it anymore. Um, they'll, they'll negotiate for lower deals or they won't be writing checks. Um, these these economic times are gonna be really trying for a lot of people, a lot of businesses. um, And we wanna make sure that we're protecting our investor capital. Part of that comes in the form of what the valuation is. The reason valuation is so important is because of that multiple that we talked about earlier. We have to see the opportunity for our investors to achieve a 10X to 20X return, 20X on the earlier side, which is a lot of what we see at the seed stage level. So we wanna see a 20X return on our money in order for us to take the risk of investing in these startup companies and if we can't see that then we're not gonna we're not going to invest sure. um a high valuation today means that a company that maybe we could see receiving a, a 100 million dollar exit multi- exit valuation all of a sudden that turns into 200 million and it gets really really hard to get to that higher valuation and, and really justify that for our investors
1: yeah you know the the seed world, if you're pre-revenue, you're in a seed round of, of funding. Uh, well, I mean, we've seen valuations as high as 12 to 15, 16 million dollars, maybe even more than that. Uh, it, it seems to us that we're we're probably back to the days of 4 million to 6 million dollars. Maybe there's a stretch to eight if there's some real exciting circumstances, but four to 6 million is really where it ought to be. And if you're out there you know, with 10, 12, $14 million valuations, pre-revenue, that is completely unrealistic. And whoever's telling you that, uh, that you should be going out to market like that is doing you a disservice. Uh, because again, we're at a, a stage in, in the, 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 the life of, of the venture world where things have rolled back significantly and will continue to do so for at least the next couple of years, I. Um, so, but you know, not raising enough money, and having an unreal an unrealistic valuation is an issue. And I would ask you too. We've talked about safe notes. Uh, we we prefer priced rounds. Uh, a lot of a lot of early stage uh, founders don't want to to talk about. A priced round and putting a value on their company, uh, and therefore they like to use convertible notes. There are circumstances where we will consider that, but we've kind of got an aversion to the to the safe S A F E note concept. You want to explain why we have some issues there?
0: Sure. Well, in terms of investor protections and requirements from companies. Um, A safe really is mediocre um, when it comes to any of those. There typically is not a maturity date. There's not a valuation cap. There's not the expected representations and warranties that we see in a true venture capital type investment round um, where we would feel comfortable participating. Um, Safes sure are popular um, on the coasts um, with some of the bigger tech firms as well, but that's not us. And they really haven't been around For all that long either. So there hasn't been enough evidence of maybe a safe that doesn't go so well going through the court system, see how they play out, like what actually happens when things don't go as planned. So we just don't have a lot of certainty um, that there's any value at all to a safe note. Um, So our preference, Lee, as you said, is to have a price round. That way we're purchasing shares in a company. We know what it is. We know what the valuation is. Um, We have voting rights in the company as well. Um, Sometimes a board seat, or maybe at least a board observer role where we can really participate in the growth of the company. Um, Convertible notes are okay sometimes. um, We do have convertible notes with companies we've invested in, but they're becoming more and more rare. And a reason for that is similarly to safe notes, they don't have the same sort of investor protections that we want to see and the valuation can really get out of control. Um, We hear from a lot of founders, they don't want to place a value on the company yet. And so they're using convertible note, but that's really a fallacy because convertible notes usually have a valuation cap. And so you are placing a value on the company, but it's just a future value. That's anybody's guess as to what it could be. Um, And that really doesn't give us a whole lot of confidence in the company as well, so price rounds are really the way to go for now. Anyway, yeah.
1: you mentioned board, uh, board of directors, and <clears throat> a lot of early stage companies, uh, particularly those in the seed or angel stage, may not even have a real board. They may have an advisory board, or they may have a loose confederation of of some experts. But governance is a big deal, and. Uh, you know, why don't we touch a little bit on, uh, the importance of, of a real, what I call a real board and, and what does that mean?
0: So a real board at the very early stage usually consists of three to five individuals. Um, one is almost always the CEO, the second one, if there's a board of five, the second one might be somebody else, maybe the number two in the company. And then the other three board members are typically made up of two investors and one independent. That's a pretty standard format that we see at the early stage. The reason that that's so important to us is because that creates accountability um, for the leadership team and for the company. Um, They have to present a budget that's approved by the board. Key hires are approved by the board. The board also is a great opportunity to get deep expertise um, in areas that the company really needs. So, if it's an agriculture company, somebody who brings that particular type of ag expertise to the board, they can advocate to that company, uh, advocate for that company as they're out in the market, um, and really help them with sales strategy, distribution channels, lots of. Um, lots of areas that the company, you know, might not be that aware of or not have the experience in that independent person is also really important to us as well, because they may not have a financial stake in the company, but they could take at least an arm's length outsider's view of what would be best for the company. Um, And even taking that perspective from the shareholders point of view, where those two investor seats are, are concerned as well. Um, We'll request a board seat and at a minimum, request, a board observer role in the companies that we invest in?
1: Yeah, we had a company recently that we were really interested in. Uh, the founder <clears throat> has, a, has a good idea, I think, but we got double whammied here. Number one, the founder was very difficult to work with, uh, did not provide the due diligence materials in any sort of timely fashion or complete fashion.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then one of our requirements uh, to invest was Uh, to create a real board. Uh, This founder was going to create a three-person board, uh, and it was himself. It was um, his largest investor. And then we had asked that there be a third uh, board member that was independent. Instead, he chose to bring on a, a, a member of his team as that third member and just completely blew us off. And so as a result, we said, sorry, we're not going to make that investment. It's important that founders understand the importance of true governance, true boards of directors that do hold uh, the team accountable for their actions and the results that they produce. And uh, that needs to start as early in the process as possible.
0: You know, I read an article, Lee, that talked about one reason that a lot of people create a new business is because they want to be their own boss. They want to work for themselves. Well, for better, or ver- for better or worse, when you're building a venture-backed business, you don't work for yourself anymore. You've got a board of directors that you're accountable to um, and who might have demands or conflicting advice that you've got to navigate. But I mean, the investors really own the business, um, at least a substantial part of the business. And so that's, that's just a part of this. Um, you have to be willing to give up some of that control um, to take on investor capital. So, you know what, Lee, we're right at the end of time. There's one more really critical piece before we wrap up. How about China? Um, And as we look at companies and we ask them about their reliance on China, either for parts um, or manufacturing or sales, um, talk to us a little bit about that component.
1: Well, there's been a decoupling uh, uh, of sorts uh, that has been ongoing now for the last couple of years with China. Uh, we we think we probably became too reliant. I believe anyway, we became too reliant upon China in in a lot of ways, uh, and uh, as a result, uh, we've we learned through COVID when the uh, plants were shut down and the shipping uh, was was non-existent, and then it became snarled in harbors. And uh, I, I I heard somewhere that it used to take fifty days. Uh, In the the old days, it took 50 days to get a container from China to the US. Uh, That number recently, it was 120 days. So even though uh, we're starting to see flow of goods again from China, it's taking an inordinately long period of time. And if you're in a business that uh, that, uh, you're you're launching a product and you're trying to catch a window for that product launch, and you miss that window because your your components, for for example, are delayed on the water somewhere. That's uh, inventory that's costing you money, uh, sitting on a ship. And then if it arrives too late, uh, it, your product may struggle to, to to gain traction in the market. I think that there are other. Uh, uh, other, other opportunities for companies to, to buy products. It may be a little bit more expensive. We heard from <clears throat> from a, a company that uh, I think that they said they had one component that cost $100 from China. Uh, they could buy it elsewhere. It might cost $200, but in the overall scheme of their, their cost structure, that did not uh, present a problem for them. We would encourage... Uh, companies to try to avoid as much as they can the reliance on China, either for customers. We've had that occur where there's just too too much uh, reliance on China to buy a product. Uh, And we've seen it more so the other way where uh, key components or assemblage of a particular hardware product uh, had to happen in China that's just—I don't—I don't think that that's a direction that, that companies should be going these days. So, uh, encourage you if you're a founder, uh, find alternatives to China.
0: I mean, and that has been a reason that we've said no to investment opportunities as well. Too much reliance on China or you know other external parties as well, but primarily it's China at this point. Yes. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and we will talk with you next time.